This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, we've reached a milestone in America healthcare. Health spending has finally topped the $3 trillion a year mark. That's approaching 20% of the nation's total gross domestic product. Just an astounding amount of money being spent per year on healthcare in this country. It certainly is. And analysts estimate that it works out to about $10,000 per capita per year spent on healthcare delivery, about twice per capita what our closest competitors spend. The only problem is it hasn't changed the fact that the U.S. still ranks last among Western nations in terms of health outcomes. Prior to the passage of the Affordable Care Act, annual health cost increases were in the double digits. Provisions in the law are aimed at keeping costs down, and we did see a dramatic drop in the rate of annual health spending over the past decade. But nevertheless, health costs still rise every year. And the question, what's driving these cost increases? Well, Margaret, it turns out that prescription drug prices are a major factor. Drug prices for health consumers in the United States rose more than 12 percent last year alone, while the overall increase in health costs were about 5 percent. So clearly, drug costs are a major contributor to the overall health spending in this country. And it doesn't look like that trend shows any sign of abating. Well, certainly another uh, contributor to rising costs in 2014 was the increased number of Americans now covered by health insurance under the Affordable Care mm-hmm. Act. And that was intentional. That took people out of the shadows of the uninsured and into the health care system. And over time, we certainly expect that access to preventive care and screenings and better chronic illness management will have a positive effect on overall cost trends. No, I think it will. And increasingly, the kind of uh, health care Americans encounter will have a technological component to it. Medicine has entered the digital age in the 21st century, something that our guest today finds both fraught with promise and cause for concern. Dr. Robert Wachter is the founder of the Hospitalist Movement. He's a prominent medical educator from the University of California at San Francisco School of Medicine and the author of the critically acclaimed The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age. He'll be talking about his concerns about over-reliance on technology as a panacea for America's health industry ills and the need to proceed with caution. Lori Robertson stops by the managing editor of factcheck.org and is always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love hearing from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. Robert Wachter in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. A million and counting. Open enrollment for next year's health coverage is marking some progress as we approach the end of the year. HHS Secretary Sylvia Burwell saying a million new customers have already signed up for coverage. The surge of interest before the end of December guarantees those who sign up by the 15th will be covered in time for the first of the year. Those who don't sign up by the end of open enrollment and remain uninsured face a tax penalty in the coming year. Some end-of-year penalties for several hundred hospitals across the country this year. Medicare penalizing 758 hospitals for raking in higher rates of patient safety issues. The fines to the hospitals total close to $400 million. The most common patient harm issues, higher rates of sepsis, hospital-acquired infections, and broken hips. Each year, Medicare also docks the pay of hospitals with too many patients coming back within a month and doles out bonuses and penalties to hospitals based on patient satisfaction scores, death rates, and 
other performance measures. Meanwhile, hospital officials are concerned these measures are punitive and take away funds needed to make the necessary patient safety improvements. And no signs of the cancer. That's the report from 91-year-old President Jimmy Carter, who underwent treatment for brain cancer resulting from a melanoma. The president was treated with a relatively new immune suppressant. But not all treatments are alike. The president's personal story shows his particular tumor compound was responsive to the treatment. But it's a harbinger of the potential benefits of personalized medicine moving forward. And the Netherlands, not a country to shy away from smokable products, but they've had time to analyze vaping and have found a higher cancer risk than previously thought among e-cigarette users. Teen smoking rates are increasing due to those e-cigs. The Netherlands considering a ban on anyone under 18 from being allowed to legally smoke or vape, as it's called. A recent U.S. study showed teens and young adults who vape are more likely to graduate to smoking combustible cigarettes than those who do not. The market for e-cigarettes is growing fast around the world as conventional smoking declines in response to massive public health campaigns and high sin taxes imposed on smoking. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Robert Walker, Associate Chairman of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. He's also Chief of Hospital Medicine and Medical Services at the UCSF Medical Center. Dr. Walker is considered to be an academic leader of the hospitalist movement. Dr. Walker is a prolific writer on patient safety and healthcare quality. He's the editor of several journals, including AHRQ's Patient Safety Network, and he's written several books including the latest, The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm in the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age. He was named seven times as one of modern healthcare's 50 most influential physician executives. He earned his MD at UPenn. Uh, Dr. Walker, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you so much for having me. You say that we're at the dawn of medicine's computer age, but you caution that technology is neither the silver bullet nor the panacea that will fix what's ailing modern healthcare. And you say, despite being staffed with mostly well-trained and committed doctors and nurses, our system delivers evidence-based care only about half the time and is bankrupting the country. You know, I thought after reading that, the next line was, besides that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? <laughs> uh, and, but you love medicine and technology, but you feel so strongly about the potential harm of the emerging use of digital technology in healthcare and why clinicians and patients alike should be concerned. Can you tell our listeners more about that? I think part of the issue is that we've been spoiled by our iPhones and we came to believe that technology enters our world and it magically transforms it mostly for the better. And for someone like me who studies patient safety, we've been waiting for computers for over a decade to come in and solve all of the problems of healthcare. And then when computers finally entered our world, and it's been remarkably recently, I began noticing funny things and doctors and patients not looking each other in the eye anymore and disgruntled colleagues, both doctors and nurses and other clinicians, and changes in workflow that were surprising. We didn't go down to radiology rounds anymore because we didn't have to. And so I've been thinking kind of a, a lot about what went wrong and what these changes were. And, uh, and then about two years ago at UCSF, which is a fabulous place, we gave a kid a 39-fold overdose of a common antibiotic. 
And at that moment, I came home and I said, I need to understand this better and then need to write about it. And the challenge, of course, was writing about it in a way that's, that doesn't dismiss the technology, but really looks at the moment that we're at in healthcare and asks, why is it not reaching its potential? Share with us how people come together after a Sentinel event like that to say, how do we make this technology work for us? When an error like that happens, it's kind of tricky if, if you have kind of a favorite villain here and say, well, the technology just needs to be better, then I think you, uh, you underappreciate the complexity of the problem. So mm-hmm. in the case that I highlighted for you, Uh, we came to realize that there were a series of policies that we created when we implemented our computer system that were perfectly well-meaning and and, and work reasonably well most of the time, but in this case made the work more complicated than it needed to be. We also came to realize the system of alerts, which sounds like a great idea. This is one of the great promises of technology. When I'm about to write for a medicine that a patient's allergic to, the thing's going to pop up and show me, you know, the patient's allergic to this. Don't do this. And that's a boon. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. But we find that we have hundreds of thousands of alerts going off a month just within the computer order entry system. Mm -hmm. Add in the alerts in the rest of the system. For example, in one month in our intensive care units at UCSF, there are 2.5 million alerts. Someone designing the system says, well, what a great idea to alert the doctor or the nurse if there's an overdose, but no one has flipped the the classroom here and looked at it from Mm -hmm. the standpoint of what is it going to feel like to be a doctor, a nurse, or a pharmacist in an environment where you're getting alerts every two minutes? And the answer is you're going to ignore them. And then there were other issues that involve culture, which is a young nurse sees an order for 39 pills when the correct dose is one and says to herself, this is really weird, but I know to get to me it had to go through a pharmacist and a doctor. And I'll check it with my technology. And so she barcodes it. And by that stage of the medication process, the barcode's job is to defend the order. And the barcode confirms that that's correct order. So we had work to do on trying to convince people that when your spidey sense tells you that something seems really kind of bizarre, trust it. Don't over-trust the technology. And don't hesitate to pull the cord and say, it's time to stop the assembly line. Let's ask a question here. So these are in some ways predictable problems, but I think for many of us in healthcare, they surprised us and we're just beginning to address them. Mm-hmm. And there has been some hope that's been realized in the use of technology. E-prescribing, though not perfect, significantly reduced prescribing errors. But you've talked and written about the High Tech Act, which provided billions of dollars, helped both the private provider and the hospitals move to the digital age. You have some real concerns about the HITECH Act. Where did we go wrong? We had to separate out two policies that passed essentially at the same time. Mm-hmm. And one was HITECH and one was meaningful use. The HITECH Act is actually an amazing backstory. In 2004, President Bush announced in the State of the Union address a goal, a federal goal of computerizing the healthcare yeah. system. We did not need federal intervention in any other segment of the economy to get us to go digital. But in healthcare, There are differences that made it such that healthcare was not going digital on its own, but the initial budget to do that was $42 million. So that's to try to transform the $3 trillion healthcare economy. That's like trying to change the direction of a battleship by sticking your feet in the ocean and kicking hard. It's not possible. (laughs) And then what happened in 2008 was the economy imploded, and they were coming up with a $700 billion stimulus package to, uh, to revive the economy. And some smart health policy leaders said, here is our one chance. It will, it will last for about five minutes and then go away forever to dive into the money pile and, and pull out enough money to get 
the system computerized. That was high tech. So that was the $30 billion of federal incentives that got us to go digital. And I don't, I'm actually not critical of those decisions, nor of high tech. I think the idea of a federal incentive program to try to push us over the line, to hit a tipping point where doctors and hospitals would go from analog to digital, I think was smart. It was happening on its own, but unbelievably slowly. And I think it has worked. So we're up to 70% EHR adoption in hospitals and doctor's offices. We were at 10% six years ago. So but that did, part's but, good. But did it freeze the electronic health records? It's put, put wind in the sail to the epics or you know the ECWs or whatever that were sure. that, that just weren't mature enough. Of course, at that of point. course. So, but I, and I've heard that criticism a lot, and I, I I push back on it. And the reason I do is I have this fundamental belief that they never would have been mature enough <laughs> unless you put them in, you use them, and then people say, "Boy, this isn't as good as I would have mm-hmm. liked. I need something better." Right. And then a market emerges. Where I get critical of the government here is when high-tech was passed, they quite sensibly said, we better have another set of policies that, that, that ensure that people just don't accept the federal money and stick the thing on the, on the shelf. And so we're going to create another set of policies that's called meaningful use. So basically, if you were going to give you federal money, you need to demonstrate that you're using the computer in a meaningful way. That's not silly, because the risk was real. But what happened with that was the federal government got very deeply into the weeds of essentially prescribing what your computer system should and shouldn't do. A lot of that is not okay, and I think we're in the, in the weeds now. Uh, you know, there's a model of the feds getting this right, and the model is the Internet, where in the early days the Internet was invented by, you know, federal researchers with federal dollars, and then they realized very quickly that we, it's time for us to pull out, and it's worked spectacularly well. Hmm. The market forces through the ACA and other mechanisms that are driving healthcare systems to me are good enough that if you have a computer system, you will tweak it in the ways you need to to meet those ultimate, ultimate goals. Well, let's stay in those weeds for a few minutes. Okay. <laughs> <We> can, <laughs> sounds like my golf game. <laughs> <laughs> Mine too. But it, but it is a fascinating area, and uh, we've had the pleasure of uh, talking over the years and meeting with David Brayler and, and Dr. Blumenthal, Dr. Mustashari, and, and uh, Karen DeSalvo most recently, um, all of whom certainly had differing views on this quest for meaningful use. Meaningful use was the first phase of it, a tremendous boon to practices who were trying to shoulder the cost of implementing electronic health records without being able to raise their fees or get better reimbursements. And that, I think we all agree, worked, as you say, spectacularly well, really helped to get people out of those paper charts and onto an electronic health record. You know, the second and third phases are really about trying to use the electronic health record to drive a change in the model of care. I think the the question I would have for you is, it doesn't seem to me it's likely that your average independent small practice can meet meaningful use two or three, and really uh, that we see more and more forces towards people having to join a large system. And I wonder if you'd like to comment on that and sort of the gains and the losses when we do that. I think there's a general bias in federal policymaking that healthcare should run more like a business and the set of incentives that allow the creation of a Google or an Apple or another high-functioning company tend not to be in existence in healthcare, and if they were in existence, they would drive toward larger, more system-y kind of organizations with better use of data. That sort of comports with my belief. I think I'm probably a little bit biased because I live in San Francisco, and where 
Kaiser Permanente is such a dominant system, and I think works pretty well. I mean, I think that that the model of a true system of the doctors and nurses and hospitals and and home care and nursing homes all being part of the system, getting a getting a dollar and distributing it as they see fit to deliver the best outcomes at the lowest cost. I think that makes more sense as an organizational principle. There are some real advantages of the mom and pop approach to healthcare in terms of the kind of personalization. And I guess my hope is that with new IT tools and with an increasing focus on the the metrics that we care about, that there will be a way to create sort of the best experience for patients in the context of the benefits that a larger system can bring. Increasingly, people will get some of their health care or maybe a lot of their health care from their home or their workplace, enabled by new technology tools or telemedicine. But it all has to fit together in this pretty complicated jigsaw puzzle, and I think it's more likely that we'll succeed in achieving the goals if people are glued together in larger systems. We're speaking today with Dr. Robert Walker, Associate Chairman of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Walker coined the phrase hospitalist and is author of the Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age. You know, you make an elegant case uh, for the emerging healthcare system that's not only based on man versus machine, but rather on two elements working together in tandem to achieve uh, the goal of the triple aim. And I think you uh, cited uh, Clive Thompson's idea of people working collaboratively with technology are far more effective than uh, either people or technology alone. And uh, tell our listeners more about... uh, uh, where the medical profession might be heading in our newly wired world. So I said I had this epiphany a year and a half ago that I needed to write about this, but I'm not a techie person at heart. And so uh, my wife is a journalist who writes for the, the New York Times, and she suggested to me that the only way I was going to get this right was to do it journalistically. And that meant I interviewed about 90 people, including all the Office of the National Coordinator Directors who you just cited. And went to see primary care docs doing their work in Dubuque, Iowa, and met with leaders at Epic and IBM. And when I asked people, what's going on now, or what do you think about government intervention, or is Epic good or bad, or all that sort of things, they had wildly different ideas. But when I asked them, where does this all end up if we get it right? The vision that almost everybody had was about the same, and it was actually quite nice. Uh, you know, Patients are getting digitally enabled care in their homes and their workplaces. We're using big data Technology brings us closer to patients and brings patients closer to each other. So I profiled uh, one of these peer-to-peer sites called Smart Patients where patients get a diagnosis with cancer and they go on the web and they talk to other patients with the same cancer and they learn a tremendous mm-hmm. amount from that. And I came to realize that if we get this right, that care will be better and more patient-centric and less expensive. And the technology is there to do it. We just have to make the right choices. This sort of man versus machine, I think, is in some ways an artificial argument that when you get it right, it's not these two are not in competition. These two weave together in new and wonderful ways. And I think we'll get there. But I think part of the reason I wanted to write the the book was I think that the hype sometimes gets in the way. And I think that it takes 10 or 15 years for the technology to settle into a new industry and make things really measurably better. And in that 10 or 15 years, Part of what's happening is the technology is getting slicker, but most of what's, what's happening is that people are reimagining the work. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we're at the stage in healthcare where I think we brought in the technology and we didn't reimagine the work. And we said, all right, this is how a doctor creates a note. Now we're going to do it in, uh, in bits and bytes rather than paper. 
but we really didn't rethink the note. I mean, the note makes no sense. Why should there be a nurse's note and a doctor's note when we have Wikipedia? Mm -hmm. Or why shouldn't it look like Facebook or Twitter where there's sort of a stream of information Mm -hmm. that everybody contributes to, including the patient? You know, the technology is there to do that. I don't think we've thought deeply enough about what are our goals and how does this Mm -hmm. technology help us reach those goals? As you speak, I'm thinking also of a... I think we'd be remiss, uh, given your leadership in the area of developing the role of the hospitalist and not giving an opportunity to comment on that as well, because certainly for a generation um, of physicians, and in this case, it was really physicians who were disrupted by this in primary care and in community medicine, uh, went into practice and spent years and decades in many cases with the hospital as kind of their daily social milieu before they went back to the relative isolation of their practices. And the hospitalist movement, as it developed for all the very good reasons it developed, really was a big dislocation uh, for that generation of providers. And I wonder, if, and no longer seeing them if they're in the hospital, being cared for by hospitalists, what's, what's the jury verdict on the, the gain and the loss around the almost complete transition now to the hospitalist movement around the country? Anytime you have a massive change, there are gains and losses, and I think that what you want to do is sort of look at the balance sheet and be sure the gains outweigh the losses. I have a strong belief, and I think the evidence supports this, that the organization of care uh, with a separate hospital doctor achieves more gains than losses. The old notion of your doctor, your regular doctor, taking care of you in the hospital is attractive in all sorts of ways and certainly may have worked okay in the year of Marcus Welby. But in the era of patients who were in the hospital being really sick, the pace being incredibly fast, I think you need a doctor there all day long. And my model for this, when when I coined the term and kind of began thinking about this, in the old, old days, there were no critical care doctors. And then people realized that you need a physician, a generalist physician, who's essentially a specialist in the place. And it happened in emergency medicine, and it happened in critical care medicine. And ultimately now the hospital has become as complicated a place where the stakes are that high. You can't have a patient being managed by someone who has a different job 10 hours of the day. Mm -hmm. I think the data say that that on average uh, quality and safety are at least neutral, if not better. Where I think things really get exciting is the maturation of the hospital's field, because what we did was position the field as being a new kind of doctor, a doctor who would not only take care of the individual patient, but also be a steward of the system and pay a lot of attention to this other sick patient, meaning the healthcare system. And as, as I look at my group at UCSF, which has about 60 faculty, we are the unquestioned leaders in the organization in improving the system and have almost a remarkable number of leadership roles in the, in, at UCSF. It's not a coincidence, I believe, that the Surgeon General is now a hospitalist and the top physician at Medicare is now a hospitalist. It's a young field, uh-huh. but I think we have bred a, a disproportionate number of leaders mm-hmm. in these areas because we have a deep belief that we did need a different kind of physician who paid attention to improving the system as well as individual patient care. But it means we have to pay a lot of attention mm-hmm. to how do we move information back and forth, and some of that's technology, but in a good system, people actually speak to or email each other uh, to make sure there's a personal connection. When I look at a high-functioning multi-specialty group, when I look at Kaiser Permanente or Geisinger or Palo Alto Medical Clinic, I think what they've done is they have created environments mm-hmm. in the ambulatory setting where physicians get much of that joy and benefit and collegiality. So I think it's in some ways another argument 
against the one or two person practice. I think we need larger organizational units in, you know, for one reason to, to kind of reimagine the environment in which physicians will get that kind of professional benefit. We've been speaking today with Dr. Robert Walker, Associate Chairman of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, Chief of Hospital Medicine and Medical Services at UCSF Medical Center, and author of The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age. You can learn more about his work by going to the-hospitalist.org. Dr. Walker, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on healthcare. It's been a great pleasure. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Do the vast majority of Americans support defunding Planned Parenthood? That's what Republican presidential candidate Carly Fiorina claimed. But national surveys actually show the opposite. Most Americans support continued federal funding for the group's health services. The controversy over federal funding of Planned Parenthood has come in response to undercover videos taken by an anti-abortion group that show Planned Parenthood officials discussing compensation for fetal tissue with people posing as employees of a company looking to procure tissue for research purposes. Federal funding for abortion is restricted by the Hyde Amendment to only abortion cases involving rape, incest, or endangerment to the life of the mother. At Planned Parenthood clinics in 2013, abortions accounted for 3% of the nearly 10.6 million total services provided by the group, according to its annual report. We found several public opinion polls that found most Americans surveyed support continued funding for Planned Parenthood. For example, A Pew Research Center poll conducted in late September found that 60% said any congressional budget deal must maintain funding for Planned Parenthood, 32% said that any agreement must eliminate such funding. A Reuters-Ipsos poll released in August found that 54% supported federal funding of Planned Parenthood, with 26% opposing it. A USA Today Suffolk University poll from late September found that 65% of those surveys said federal funding of Planned Parenthood should continue, while 29% said it should be eliminated. And there are other polls with similar findings. We also consulted Marquette University's Charles Franklin, a polling expert who runs pollsandvotes.com, to ask if he knew of any national polls that supported Fiorina's claim. He did not. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. 
pregnancy is normally an exciting time for most women, but according to the research, an estimated 10% of prenatal women experience some kind of depression during their pregnancy, and many are reluctant to treat their depression with medication for fear of harming the fetus. In fact, a higher percentage are experiencing Um, lower-grade depressive symptoms, so they might not meet full criteria for a major depressive episode, but they're having significant symptoms that are getting in the way of of feeling good, perhaps even getting in the way of engaging in the kind of healthy behaviors that are going to support a healthy pregnancy. And left untreated, those mild to moderate symptoms can progress and can lead to a more serious postpartum depression. Dr. Cynthia Battle is a psychologist at Brown University with a practice at Women's and Infants Hospital in Providence. She and her colleagues decided to test a cohort of pregnant women to see if a targeted prenatal yoga class, which combines exercise with mindfulness techniques, might have a positive impact on women dealing with prenatal depression. We worked with these experts to really come up with a program that was similar to what you might find in the community that would include physical postures, meditation exercises. And we enrolled 34 women who are pregnant, who had clinical levels of depression, and we measured their change in depressive symptoms over that period of time. Not only were women able to manage their depressive incidents, they also bonded with other pregnant women during the program and found additional support from their group. Women who are depressed during pregnancy, unfortunately, do often have some less ideal birth outcomes. So one thing we're interested in seeing if when we provide a prenatal yoga program, can it improve mood? And then can we even see some positive effects uh, in terms of the birth outcomes? A guided non-medical yoga exercise program designed to assist pregnant women through depression symptoms helping them successfully navigate those symptoms without medication, ensuring a safer pregnancy and a healthier outcome for mother and baby. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org and brought to you by the Community Health Center.